Oh, hey, so me again. And Eric's out this week. Uh, so um, I am with you, and we are continuing on in our series, uh, The Bible Doesn't Say That, uh, which has been uh, really fun to look through a lot of misconceptions, a lot of maybe uh, words or phrases that we thought were there, or that God said that maybe he didn't say it that way. Um, today, we're looking at whether or not God wants us happy. You ever heard that? God wants you happy? God wants you happy. Um, so is it in the Bible? Did God ever really say that? Is he concerned with our happiness? This one's actually a tricky one uh, because if you open your Bible app, which I'm going to ask you to do, you're going to need it today. This is permission to take out your phone in church. And if you're watching from home, you probably already have that out anyway. So you're going to take out your phone, open your Bible app. We're going to use it today. We're going to read a significant amount of scripture. But first, I want you to do what I did. I just searched for the word happy. Could you do that? When you open it up, it's loading. It's taking a while. Um, go ahead and you can do a keyword search and go ahead and search for the word happy. A lot of verses come up. This is a screenshot of what mine looked like when I searched for the word happy. A uh, lot of, lots of options there. The verses are stacking up. At least for my search, the, the first one that it showed um, was in Genesis. And if you were with us um, in, during the holiday season, I preached a train wreck of a sermon on, uh, I think we got through two-thirds of Genesis for that one, and we talked about family and family dynamics, and we talked about the line of Abraham, and that's where, where this first one comes from. It's Leah, remember, the, the ugly sister of the two, um, who was just so happy uh, to be able to bear children to her husband, who didn't even want to marry her, Jacob, at first. Um, and so here she bears him a son. That was something that brought her joy and happiness, so she actually names him Happy. She names him Asher, which means happy. So it's the first one that comes up for me. There's lots of verses there. There's a really strange one if you're looking throughout your verses and you're coming across Psalm 137. That would take an entire other sermon to get through. I'm not going to touch that one right now. Uh, but Psalm 68.3, if you found that one, I'm going to pop that one up on the screen too. Uh, that's the first one that really caught my attention for whether or not God wants us happy. It says, uh, but may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. May they be happy and joyful. It says it right there. We're done. We can all go home, y'all. The Bible said that God wants us happy. And I'm a little confused why it's on the Bible doesn't say that list. We might, we might want to look at this. It says it right there. May they be happy and joyful. Well, I think words really matter, especially when we're seeking understanding, because misunderstanding behind, you know, even just one word can be the reason for entire arguments in a relationship. It certainly throws off a conversation if you're using a word one way that maybe the other person is using differently. I think of um, my work that I do. A lot of you know that I work for Students for Life. It's a pro-life organization. Um, and in the work that I do, I'm on college campuses, you know, teaching ethics classes, or I'm just having a lot of debate, discussion. This happens all the time in the work that I do and, and the students who I teach, I, I try to help them be aware of this. Uh, so in a typical conversation with somebody, um, we're talking about you know, the, the ethics of abortion, the humanity of the pre-born, and I'll hear one person say, um, well, they're not human. The pre-born is a fetus, it's not human. And then so the, the pro-life person gets really upset. I can hear my students getting really upset and they're going all science 
of course they're human, biological, human parents, and they're talking about DNA, and I'm hearing these two different people use the same word differently. And we have to ask a clarifying question in that scenario, and this is what I teach my students. Ask them how they're using the word human. Ask them what they mean by that. Do you mean human biologically, or do you mean valuable human person, like philosophical? Oh, I, yeah, yeah, they're, they're human from a human species, sure, but like, no, they're not a human person yet. Oh, and then we just all have this kind of light bulb moment. We've been using the same word differently. We've been using the same word differently. It can really throw things off. So I want to pay attention to the word happy. If we're going to ask, does God want us happy, and we're going to pull out all of these verses, I want to pay attention to that word, and I want to think about what comes to mind when I think of the word happy is going to be a lot different than maybe what comes to Frank's mind when he thinks of the word happy or our kids. Certainly it's going to look different than whoever wrote this scripture thousands of years ago. Certainly it's going to look different to God. So I really want to be careful about how we look at words. And I want to be careful, you know, with, with how we interpret the Bible. This entire uh, series, I think we've really done a good job about how do we study scripture how do we look at the Bible and how do we kind of dig deeper into that? Because honestly, you can kind of make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Uh, I remember uh, back in the day, Frank and I went to a lot of shows, a little bit less now with the kids, but a lot of concerts, a lot of shows, a lot of uh, dive venues with bands that nobody's ever heard about. I don't remember if you were at this one in Pittsburgh with me. Uh, it was at a, an old church that they had flipped into a concert venue. Were you at that one, My Chemical Romance? maybe. Well, there were uh, a bunch of just tables set up, and one table um, that was set up with information said Jesus was a vegan. And I was baby Christian at this time. I think I must have been 17, 18 years old, and I'm just scratching my head going, oh, no, that's right. And so I just asked some questions like, hey, where are you basing this on? What do you think Jesus was a vegan? Um, and so they told me their bit, and I just kind of was asking questions. Well, what about like feeding the 5,000 people with fish? And they're like, well, he didn't, he doesn't say he had any. <sighs> okay, I guess. But he's like pro-fishing, at least, right? Like he's fine with fishing and killing fish and handing it out. Um, and then what, isn't there like a verse somewhere when he's, he's come back to life, he's resurrected, he's trying to prove to his disciples that he's real, and um, he asks them for something to eat, and they give him fish, and scripture says he ate it. And then they're kind of looking at me like really blank stared. Oh, it's all up for interpretation. Okay, but you know, that, that's a really good point from the, the Jesus was a vegan group. Um, you know, it's all up for interpretation. That's kind of key. They're right. It is up for interpretation, and how we interpret it is really, really crucial. Um, last year, I took a class as part of my path towards ordination as a pastor, um, and it was an exegesis class. I had no idea how to say that word. Uh, when I was signing up to register for the class, I'm like, yeah, I'll take uh, the exegesis, if I could have one of those, please. <laughs> Something about geese, I assume. I'm going to learn how geese are in scripture. No, uh, but I, I learned how to say it, and uh, I love learning, and I love school, and y'all, that class kicked my butt. I have never worked harder for a B-plus in my life, but exegesis was, uh, it, it's just studying scripture, analyzing the text, really digging in there to see uh, what God has to say to us. What is he trying to teach us? And so um, I just kind of pulled out a quote from one of my textbooks. I found it. I got the dust off that thing. Um, and one of the only things I happened to, to underline, I just wanted to share quickly with you. Um, 
hear from, it, Michael Gorman wrote uh, this book. It's, um, I don't think I put that one on the screen. I didn't. I'll get back to it. Um, a Bible translation or version is a scholarly attempt to render the stories and thoughts of people from ancient cultures who spoke ancient languages into a modern language that is spoken by people who live in very different contemporary cultures. Translation is more of an art than a precise science. I thought that was pretty beautiful. It's more of an art than a precise science. So kind of common sense that when we're looking at any passage of scripture, uh, we're reading something that's at least 2,000 years old. And when we're digging into Old Testament scripture, over 3,000 years old. And so if we don't stop to appreciate that and consider that, I think we naturally put maybe too much of ourselves in certain words. We put too much of what we think something means uh, into scripture. So we need to think about what exactly is happening. And I think that's what's happening when we ask ourselves, does God want us happy? I I think that's what we're doing a little bit. Um, What's God's meaning of the word happy versus what are we putting there. Now, I'm not a biblical scholar. I took the one class, y'all, and a couple others. I'm not part of a team who has ever uh, written a Bible translation, but, but what I have learned and what I have always respected, and I want you to know that I'm doing this when I approach scripture, um, I want to know, and I, I want to know what God's telling us. I know that scripture is there to tell us something about him, His words to us are to instruct his people, to guide his people to get to him. The intent of the writing that we have, that God has so graciously given to us, is God pointing us back to him in his saving grace. So although a a quick keyword search uh, does get us closer to the answer today, um, I believe it's in our benefit to dig a little deeper when we're exploring uh, what God really has to say about happiness. So there's one book in particular that has a lot to say about happiness, and it's Ecclesiastes. Has anyone ever read Ecclesiastes start to finish? Guess what we're going to do today. No, not start to finish, but we're going to read a significant amount of it. So hopefully you kept uh, your Bible apps out and ready. Uh, So here's an example. If you did your your keyword search, uh, and happy probably came up, there were a lot of verses out of Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes 3.12. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. Well, that really caught my attention. There is nothing better for people than to be happy? There's nothing better. Are we saying it's not in the Bible? Because it's not, I'm not only seeing it in the Bible, but, but the Bible telling me it's nothing, there's nothing better um, than happiness while we're alive. Sounds like eat, drink, and be merry to me. Uh, so immediately, I want to ask a few key things. Um, so the, this is the, the kinds of things that they, you know, they're teaching us to ask in our classes. Um, so who wrote it? We're going to look at who wrote it. Uh, what is the context of this historically? What genre is the writing? That's a, one, that's a fun one to ask sometimes. Um, and most importantly, what is God trying to teach us? Always having that lens, not of what we want to put in it, but what is God having for us today? What does he want to teach us? So I sat down and I read all of Ecclesiastes. I just had to. So it's only 12 chapters long. They're actually pretty short, easy to read but a little strange, and we're going to see what makes them kind of confusing and strange, and um, really fun fact, has anybody ever heard the song Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds? 
Turned, you, got, you got a couple people. It's back in the 60s. It's a famous song. I'm not really going to sing it. Um, I want to play it for you. Maybe I can get Frank. Frank didn't even know the song when I tried to tell him this. So turn, turn, turn. Oh, you got booed. <laughs> so that song you got playing in your head, it's Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. I'm this many years old, and I just learned that. Like, I did not know that. My parents totally knew when I told them. Like, did you know that's just straight scripture? I can just imagine people all over singing this song, atheists are singing scripture. Like, that's so cool. Um, love that song. So, anyway, uh, we're going to read a lot of Ecclesiastes together, which is why I was hoping you had your Bible apps out. It will not all fit on the screen. Uh, but some helpful context for you. We are going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, so the author is sometimes debated. It's not um, said very directly, like, hey, I'm this guy and I wrote this book. Uh, it's one of those books where you kind of have to do some digging, but most uh, scholars agree and believe uh, that it is King Solomon who wrote this book. So I want us to be thinking that um, as we're reading through this from a perspective of King Solomon. So based on the clues that we have in the writing itself, right away in chapter 1, verse 1, it opens with the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And we know that those things are true about King Solomon, right? Um, it's, uh, chapter 12 also says, not only was the teacher wise, but he also taught knowledge to the people. So, I mean, I think that's King Solomon, right? He, um, he's the, historically known as the wisest king in Israel. And we know Solomon uh, has already been credited with writing other books in the Bible, uh, books of wisdom, you know, the Proverbs, book of Proverbs. He's also credited with Song of Songs. Uh, so we know he's a writer uh, and someone who has written material that has made it into the Bible. Additionally, as we read through, uh, I think the language used in the book and the ideas shared from this author, I believe, really show the heart and the experience of someone like King Solomon, and we'll see why that is as we read it. So Ecclesiastes can be confusing if you're to just kind of sit down and read this on your own. Um, there are some times when it sounds kind of contradictory uh, within itself. So in chapter 2, Solomon says uh, that partying and happiness is folly and it accomplishes nothing yet you know and then we have other places like in chapter eight he said there's nothing better on earth than for a person to do except drink and enjoy life so there's a lot of like back and forth it's almost like someone arguing with themselves kind of throughout the book it's interesting i think it's also helpful to consider the genre at this point for this text so um we encounter a number of genres. If you don't kind of look at the Bible that way, I think you should. Uh, you've got historical, narrative, biographies. You've got poetry. And so we would put uh, this book, Ecclesiastes, into like a, a wisdom literature. And I would even add some poetry there. And you'll see why as we read through it. It's very poetic at times. Um, but before we dive into it, I do just want to pause and pray, and I try to do this uh, before I really dive into scripture, and you can ask Frank, I was praying like a hundred times last night, and I was like, I just, okay, I'm going to pray again over, you know, what does God want uh, me to see here? Um, so we're going to pause and pray before we dive into scripture, because I really want us to have a heart of what is God having for us here. So will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We respect your word, God. We want to know, we want to know what you're teaching us, God, as we approach your scripture. Reveal to us, God, whatever it is um, that you have for us today, God. I, I thank you for these ancient texts, something so, so far back in our minds from our days today, from our culture. Um, and I just pray that you help us apply that to our life. You humble us, God, for whatever that lesson may be. 
Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, let's dive in to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to read all of chapter 1. I will pause kind of throughout, but let's just dive in. Well, it starts really fun. Everything is meaningless. Good opening. Uh, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utter meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new. It is here already, long ago, it was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I'm going to pause right there. First look, kind of depressing. A little bit. Uh, everything's meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Oh, my goodness. Another fun trick in your Bible app is if you click that verse, and then there's a little button uh, for compare. I love to do that. And you can compare different translations. And we can talk later if you're interested in what translations that might be helpful to compare to. So when you do that, um, the word meaningless uh, sometimes comes up as vanity or futile. It's all futile. Basically, everything's for nothing. Life is just pointless. Oh, this is really, really important that, that we're thinking of Solomon as the author here. Um, and Solomon actually, I said, is very poetic. Um, he treats this phrase, he uses this phrase a lot, and he uses it quite as bookends. So he opens his writing with this, and he's going to close his writing with this in chapter 12. Everything uh, is meaningless. We also hear a long list of cyclical imagery, things that kind of come and go and round and round, right? We heard um, the sun rises and sets and comes back again. The wind travels around and around, streams to the sea and back again. There's a lot of that imagery in there. Um, Solomon really catches our attention, I think, right away. That, that made me want to keep reading. Um, so I'm going to go on to the next section, which is interestingly titled, Wisdom is Meaningless. This is supposed to be Israel's wisest king, right? And the wisest guy in the world is saying wisdom is meaningless. So let's see what he says here. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing of the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So even a man who is known for his wisdom, at the end of his life, he's here telling us wisdom is meaningless. At this point, I actually think we're getting closer to whether or not God wants us happy. 
You may not see it yet, but I, I think we're getting closer. We're going to read just a part of chapter 2. We're not going to read all of it. Uh, and there is something concerning our happiness, and then we'll skip to the end. So I'm going to read part of chapter 2 and pause, and then I promise it's our last big chunk. But this is fun, right? Walking away saying you read like a good portion of the Bible today in church. All right. All right, chapter 2. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Hmm. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this my wisdom stayed with me. Humble, right? I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I'm going to pause there. Wow. Well, first of all, do you have that person at holidays that you have no idea what to get them because they have everything like that Solomon <laughs> that Solomon times 10 I can't imagine like his family around a birthday or holiday time I don't know what they did back then um, you know I could give you a gift card but you have money <laughs> like you already have all the things I don't think my $20 item is going to benefit you very much um, but he not only covered money He's not only wealthy, but he had numerous slaves waiting on him. You can only imagine, maybe don't imagine what he meant by he denied his eyes, you know, nothing. Um, if you want more on that, Song of Songs, I think, is where you're looking. Um, and so, actually, I think he, he covers so many things. He talks about work and projects very interestingly. Um, you know, he has the work of being a king. He was called to lead. Like, like, that's very admirable. He lists plenty of really good things, like planting fruit trees and vineyards. That's all actually kind of fun. So Frank and I have tried that a couple of times. I think I have a picture somewhere. Ah, oh, look, there it is. So uh, Frank and I have labored over that. Uh, we have been working um, on, we actually planted two grapevines uh, the other weekend. We did it wrong. Um, but we tried. And so for years, I think we have destroyed dozens of avocado pits. Has anyone tried to start an avocado from seed? And like you're reading all the articles and Pinterest is telling you it's a super easy thing, right? All you need to do is stick three little toothpicks in the right spot and just, all you know, hover it over water. Uh, but not too much water or you'll rot it. And not, not enough water or it'll dry out. And oh, you have to change the water every single day. And oh, you should rotate it and read it a bedtime story. Like it's really difficult to grow these things. But look at that. The little toothpicks, little Tupperware, and I think I need to water the basil. It's kind of wilty. Um, and then the other two um, are peach trees. 
We went up to Larryland, got some peaches, and cleaned off all the way down to the pit. I took them outside and I kind of hammered the shell of the pit off. I put them, uh, the seed inside the pit, in a baggie of dirt in the fridge for six months. And then it started to sprout. It worked. It's like tricking it that it's winter. I don't know the science behind it. All I know is it worked twice. Uh, and then we put it in dirt. Now it's growing a tree. Like, that's so cool. And Solomon's saying he has planted vineyards and he's done all these things and planted all of these trees. And that sounds like really great, actually. And I, I kind of know that feeling a little bit. Like we toiled and we worked hard at this. It was a labor of love, a labor of tiny little toothpicks. I wonder how avocados grow in the wild without human intervention. Like, do you just imagine little solo cups of toothpicks under the trees? How else do they grow? I, okay. Um, anyway, so I find myself drawing at least a few conclusions. Maybe our life isn't quite like Solomon's. You know, we've got these vineyards, two grapevines that we planted wrong, and we've got these fruit trees that it took us years to, to grow, and he built all these houses. We bought one broken house and we're trying to fix it. So we've got some things to compare. What is the same is that it's these, these joys in life, these labors of love, and we work hard at our jobs. I love my job. I 100% believe I am called to be where I am in my work life, and I love that. And some of you have jobs you love, and you love getting up and going to work and serving God and wherever it is that, that he's called you to serve. Um, maybe others, if you don't like your job as much, um, Frank, maybe not as much. He works outside every day. Uh, but what he does is he works hard. He works hard, and that's honorable, and that's good. So then, then why do we have this king who's going to say toil is meaningless and working hard is meaningless and this great calling of his seems to be meaningless. The rest of chapter 2, I'm not going to read much more of it, um, but when you go home and you read it, um, you're going to see he's reflecting on that all of these things that he's stored up on earth are eventually going to go to somebody else. I worked really hard for this. I built this up and now some other guy's going to get it. You can't take it with you. He's kind of realizing that here. So, so what's the point? I'm going to skip down to verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Contradictory, going back and forth here. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? That was kind of important. I'm going to read that again. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Man, I love that phrase. A chasing after the wind. That kind of cyclical imagery that we keep seeing. Everything just going around and around. The wind kind of goes around like that too. And, and everything that we do in life, it's like we're chasing after something that we will absolutely never hold if what? If God's not in it. If God's not in it, we're holding on to nothing. If God's not in it, we are chasing after the wind. Because God doesn't want you just happy. God doesn't want you just happy. He wants you righteously fulfilled. And I believe that's different. 
To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. This reminds me a lot of Psalm 68.3 again, and a lot of other verses I found when I searched for happiness. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Who can be happy? The righteous. What is that? The ones who know God. The ones who follow God. Does God want us happy? He doesn't want you just happy. He wants you righteously fulfilled. Look at Solomon and what happiness might mean there. Because it's not going to look like empty, worldly possessions. It's a popular message in church world, right? Debunking this theology of happiness, and that's maybe not really anything new to us. But it's something that we have to keep in check regularly. We have to keep that in check regularly, especially as Christians. And I think King Solomon really shows us that. That's proof. He's the, he was known as the wisest king. He originally was following a calling from God, and he fell. He fell victim to chasing after the wind, even somebody that great. Might as well come up. Signaling to you. That was my official signal. Um, so, so we're looking at Solomon. Even a great king can fall victim uh, to this theology of happiness. This writing of Solomon here, it's in the later years of his life. Uh, it sounds kind of depressing in a lot of parts. And what's the point? What's the point? What's the point? Because so much of Solomon's life was actually spent apart from God, not following him. And that, that might be true for some of us, maybe parts of that in our lives, that we spend our whole life trying to make sense of life only to miss it, only to be chasing the wind of happiness. We come up never really holding on to anything. So I want to go to the end. If you still have your Bible app up, don't put that way in. We're going to the end. We're going to chapter 12. Remember, he kind of bookended his writing with the everything is meaningless, meaningless. So you'll see that come back. I'm going to have you scroll down to this kind of grand conclusion that he makes. And so I'm in verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. That's the end. It's an interesting way to end this compared to everything else this very wise man was saying. Solomon was supposed to be wise, but as you might already know, he missed the mark a lot when it came to following God. Scripture tells us um, that he actually married, King Solomon married um, a lot of foreign women, a lot of women with other gods. He married women who worshipped false idols, and then he was led astray. He not only also followed those false idols, he spent time building places to worship those false idols. He really, truly missed the mark and walked away from God for much of his life. And I was just trying to learn more about King Solomon. I found in 1 Kings chapter 11 is when God talks to him and says, you know, you have fallen away from me. You have gone away from me. You're now worshiping other gods. I've tried to correct you. I've tried to reach out to you. And now I'm going to give your kingdom to someone else. That language that we hear in Ecclesiastes, I'm going to work so hard for it all to go to somebody else. God actually tells him that in 1 Kings chapter 11. I, 
I'm going to go ahead and give your kingdom and everything you worked hard for over to someone else in the next generations. My goodness, what I'm hearing in Ecclesiastes is someone who works so hard and toils so hard selfishly. Someone who works so hard apart from God. And Ecclesiastes, it's a very unique window into someone's end-of-life regret. It's not uncommon for people to kind of get to the end of their life and look back and think, I wish I really would have done that moment differently. Some people might be, they wish they would have done the whole thing differently. I don't know. That's not uncommon. But, but what is unique, it's not very often that we get someone's outpouring inner thoughts on that. We're like reading Solomon's diary right now. Wonder if he knew that would be published. It's, it's not often that we get to kind of hear that. And I, I can imagine him at the end here in chapter 12 just wanting to go back and do it all again. I know, at least for me, I am seeing clearly how God is, is pulling us to him here with a warning and a celebration. I hear a warning, uh, you know, don't be like Solomon, right? I hear Solomon saying, don't be like me. Don't fall for just happiness because even a wise king at the top of his game was tricked. He was deceived. And then I, I hear a celebration in a lot of these verses. I hear a celebration that God has more for you than just chasing after the wind. He has something that you can hold on to. And it's when we live life with him and for him, then there's purpose then there's beyond happiness. And it's not all just meaningless and we can rejoice and we can be glad because God doesn't want us just happy. He wants us righteously fulfilled. Amen? All right, church, let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your lessons that you bless us with. So many people who have come before us, generations that will not forget, you know, Solomon maybe assumed he would be forgotten. Generations come and generations go, but we didn't forget him and we did not miss, God, the lesson that you have for us in there. You want more than just what we see as happiness, what our world teaches us, what happiness is, what our culture has trained us to believe, what happiness is. You want more. For us in that. You don't want us to just be happy. I am so thankful, God, that we can be righteously fulfilled because of what your son did on a cross, because what you give to us, because what you provide for us every single day. Help us to be anchored to that. Help us to never lose that truth, to always have your wisdom, God, and not our own. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things.